Did you notice who directed this movie? Uh, I did not. I did not notice who directed it. Um, oh, me neither. Was it Steven Seagal's ego? Is that who it was? <laughs> yeah, and his conscience, too, I think. Both of them together there. Yeah, he has a conscience? I mean, there's an awful lot of praying to uh, to God in this movie at the start, for sure. That is true. I think that's just to make him seem like a relatable good guy, you know? That's going to explain why a lot of this stuff happens. Uh, well, otherwise, all that murder would just seem malicious, you know? <laughs> Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And today we are covering only our second ever Steven Seagal movie in which really should be like a rich uh, oeuvre to choose from. We're talking about Hard to Kill. Yeah, it's hard to believe that he. this is only the second time we've had Seagal on the podcast because uh, he has put out a whole bunch of stinkers for sure. It's hard for me to separate who he is now to uh, to the action films he did then, but I'm going to do my best as we go through it today to to just sort of share my experience of watching the movie and not sort of the monster that Steven Seagal has become. I think you did enough of that during our Under Siege episode in uh, season two. It was very tough to separate art from artists on that one. Yeah, I think I got it out of my system. I got it all out. All right. Hopefully, yes. We'll see in a minute. But first, before we get to the movie, we have paired the movie up with a beer. Why don't you tell everyone what we're drinking today, Noel? Yeah, it's not going to make sense at first, but as soon as we give you the name of our title character, you're going to understand. But we're going to be drinking a Keats Lager. Uh, that's the name of the beer. And this is from the Stormstayed Brewery out of London, Ontario. Now, the connection here, and you made this one, and I think it's quite a good one. Do you want to let everyone know? Yeah, man. Our main character's name is Mason Storm. Who stays alive despite being shot. So the storm stayed here is uh, a pretty good luck. He stayed. He stayed in the movie the whole time. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, more plot armor on uh, him here than uh, almost any character we have ever seen before. <laughs> Maybe not uh, our main character uh, from uh, Friday the 13th movie, though. You know, Oh, Steven from Jason Goes to Hell. You were really on him for that, actually. <laughs> I gave him the gears for sure, but uh, I know he he deserved it. That actor probably like just revels in that role, right? He got so much screen He's time. He's got to be number one in his IMDb, like known for. <laughs> I just have to assume that. Uh, so Stormstayed uh, has been around for about six years now. It's sort of a small community-oriented brewery. They make both traditional and modern styles of beer. Unfortunately, they no longer ship them. They did kind of during the pandemic, but now you uh, have to either get them from a distributor like the LCBO here in Ontario or just maybe take a chance to go to London and go visit them yourself. Uh, we'll let you know whether it's worth visiting, I guess, after drinking this beer. Well, I was going to say it was unfortunate for you because the only one of their beers we could find right here was a lager. I know you were hoping for like an IPA or something, but uh, I'm just laughing over here. So we're all good. Well, I don't I think this is going to be very crushable. Uh, I know some of the ones coming down the pipe might be a little harder for you to drink. So I don't mind if uh, we mix some of these in. I was checking out the beers on their website and man, they have one I would have liked to try. It's called the Iron Butterfly. It's Ooh. an imperial fruit sour. Oh, I've never heard of an imperial sour before. No, me either. It's peach, blackberry, and pineapple, and it's 8.2%. What kind of barrels is it aged in? I, I don't know. Tequila? Good Rum? Question. What do you think? Maybe it's not even aged, though. It doesn't have to be aged. I thought an imperial was always aged in barrels. 
I think it's just the uh, amount of alcohol, isn't it? Just alcohol oh, level. I think I mean, you're the fuck. Don't ask me. You're the beer guy. What do you ask? Yeah, me no, for? no. I think Imperial is just the the alcohol uh, percentage. It's just increasing the amount of alcohol in it, uh, not actually aging it. Often they do. They kind of pair together a lot of the time. But I, yeah. it doesn't have to be aged to be an Imperial. All right. You know what? You had an IPA last week too, as I'm recalling when we did uh, Attack of the Beast Creatures. So you, you know, it's it, it's time for a lager. I think I'm very excited to be drinking this. Yeah, we're bouncing it out. Do you want to get into it? Absolutely. Let's do it. So we fade in on a smoky street, the place, Los Angeles, California, the time, night. A car pulls up on a quiet pier, but it won't be quiet for long as another car appears soon afterwards. And we get the distinct impression that these guys are here to do some business, but definitely not the legal kind. Now, you know who else thinks so? Steven Seagal, a.k.a. Detective Mason Storm, who stakes out a safe location to observe and record these guys. And lest we think he has all night, his first line of the movie is, Come on, let's go, guys. I'm missing the Oscars. This is the first of like seven Oscars references we get in the first 10 minutes of this movie. What is Seagal's obsession with the Oscars here? Has he always been holding out hope to get one? Um, I'm assuming he's <laughs> never earned one. Oh my God, uh, no, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. We are getting 80s like crime mood really quickly. The, the 90s movie like, though. I think it's supposed to take place in 1983 is the like setting. You know what? No, you're right because he goes to yeah. I never mind. I forgot that he fucking is in a coma for half this movie. <laughs> so we've got '80s sound bringing us in. We have this strong drumming guitar music to set the mood. And like you said, there is definitely a shady deal going down here. Uh, to record that deal, though, Seagal pulls out about a hundred pounds of recording equipment. Well, that was the what they had at the time, right? It's a big ass camera with that like um, long wand microphone thing. Yeah, he's also got a tape recorder running simultaneously, so he has both the video and audio evidence of the shenanigans. He's sort of, like, hiding behind a shipping container. We're down at the docks, because that's where, like, all this shit goes down, right? And he's recording from around the corner. Yeah, and what we quickly learn in this scene is that a man named Vernon Trent is running for senator, and he's not above breaking the law to make it happen. That goes as far as murder, which is why he's here asking these mafia stereotypes to bump off his opponent. Seagal captures them laying out the hit on film, but he can't identify Vernon Trent and later gets frustrated with the low quality audio. Been there, brother. His attempts to fix it end up making a sound that gets the mobster's attention, which is bad news for him, but great news for anyone who loves low quality chase scenes. <laughs> yeah, holy shit. This is an amateur move here with him crashing his recording equipment into some of the metal containers and making a bunch of sound. Like you said, we're going to head into a pretty poor car chase as we sort of head into the credits as well. This is also kind of taking place as they're doing the intro credits. Yeah, a bit of a prologue here. This chase scene is only like two minutes long. I didn't understand. It was like not even much of a scene at all. And it doesn't seem like they follow him or even catch him. We transition out of it really quickly to Mason Storm at a convenience store. He goes to a payphone first, I think, as he calls his partner, a guy named Carl Becker, to give him the good news. I'm not sure why this guy wasn't out with him on the stakeout, but whatever. Unfortunately for our good detective, a couple of other, shall we say, less ethical cops jump on the line and hear everything he's saying. And all I could think of here was landline strike again. If his partner had a cell phone, this guy would still have a family. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's true. The, uh, the tally we must have going on the podcast for problem solved by removal of landlines has got to be double digits at this point. 
it is pretty funny seeing these dirty cops pick up the other line and cover the end and listen in. And <laughs> this is how his family gets taken out, right? Like, it's such a shitty and crappy thing to do. I would have assumed back then, though, even in the 80s, you would have been trying to find a secure line or you might have checked for that kind of thing if it was this big. But I guess you assume you're safe at the police department. Yeah, that's true. You have to assume the cops are on the good side. This is such a thing that, like, we've talked about this before, too, where, like, a younger generation has no idea what that would be like. But, like, as kids, we would all, like, be on the one phone, like, the mouth covered, listening to someone else's call. Like, that's very common for people of our age, but not for people that are, like, 20 years younger than us. Yeah, no, I think this is if you are under 30 years of age at this moment, you would have no understanding of what this was. Yeah. You would just be confused, right? Like, it wouldn't even be, you'd be like, oh. Definitely. Now, in this next scene, we get to the convenience store that you mentioned earlier. And I would call this scene padding, but I guess we kind of need it to establish Seagal's badass credentials, maybe. He goes in this store to get some champagne to celebrate this big evidence he's got. And after a couple of minutes of back and forth with the store owner, some punks come in to rob the place. Once these guys show up, it becomes the Steven Seagal show. And if you told me he wrote the dialogue here, I would totally believe you. Literally everything he says to these guys is designed to make him sound like the ultimate badass. (laughs) I think that he had a hand in writing his lines here for sure, just because... Like you said, the things that come out of his mouth, both as he's like playing it up at the start and then also after he's kicked the ass of almost the entire crew. So he beats up like all of these people, disarms a guy and what is left is a smaller guy with a knife and he just mocks the shit out of this guy for his height <laughs> and he even goes down on his knees he and on his knees. and then the guy yeah. comes at him and he breaks his hand. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Mine's bigger than yours, right? It's not fair. Throw it away. All right? Come on. You're fucking dead, man! Ah, it's still not fair, that's right. Okay, how about this? I'll get that on my knees. Is this any better? Hmm? Come and get some. He must destroy, I don't know, 30 bones of other people in this movie. It is like one of his phrases. I started keeping a tally because almost every time he's on the screen fighting, he is snapping somebody's bones. And it's, it was just really funny. I thought that was hilarious. How many bones are in the human foot? Because he takes this guy's foot and fucking turns it around so it's pointing the other way. <laughs> Good girl. Right. Like cartoon. He, he broke a dozen bones in this one move. You're right. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. He was just oh my God. Smashing man. everyone. Oh, yeah. I. The action is kind of funny, and him mocking the guy is, like, very, very Seagal. He's clearly not a good martial artist, but the, like, timing and attitude that he takes down here, I actually laughed a lot at. Oh, God, it's all attitude for sure. After taking away this guy's ability to walk for the rest of his life, Seagal drives home while listening to the audio from his recording and trying to place the mystery man's voice. He almost has it, but once he gets home, all of that is forgotten as we say goodbye to Mason Storm Detective and hello to Mason Storm Family Man. And I have to say, out of all the scenes in this movie, these ones with his wife and kid are to me the least believable. His acting as a father and a partner, it's absolutely trash. He gets on like a very whispery voice. Like, I think that's how he gets soft. And he sort of does all of his lines as this very like calm, whispery guy. And it is so, so terrible. Yeah, he does not seem even a little bit believable as this lady's husband or as this kid's father. There is a lot of focus on prayer, like you're saying. And we have what is, I'm sure, supposed to be a very touching good night with his son. 
you mentioned him uh, getting soft with the voice. He's not getting soft in a second because he's about to enjoy some celebration sex with the actress they forced to play his wife. <laughs> yeah, after this very extended prayer scene where he definitely is trying to build his credentials as like a good human, you know his wife and child are in trouble. Oh, absolutely. And if you didn't know it before, we know it as soon as we see three masked men stalking up the stairs. Now, because he's a martial arts master, Steven Seagal detects their presence right before they burst through the door, and he manages to roll his wife out of the way of the first couple of gunshots these guys send off and even get his own gun. But despite putting down two of these guys, the third one blows Seagal and his wife away. Now, I should point out two things here. First, that Seagal is obviously not dead, otherwise there'd be no movie. And second, that he shrugs off two full shotgun blasts at close range before the third one puts him down. And the scene with his son was still less believable than this. <laughs> there is so much outrageous stuff in this, but you are right. <laughs> the scenes with the son are less believable. Um, he does make that sweet roll. He knows right away. He takes the two guys out. His wife gets blasted, and we get, like, some really awkward scream slow-mo here. Um, who shows up as the body of both uh, Seagal and his wife are splayed across the bed there? Well, yeah, speaking of his son, the sound of many, many gunshots obviously woke him up from his slumber, and he wanders down the hall to see the two men with masks who are still alive planting cocaine in his father's nightstand. Now, they spot the kid and start shooting, but he manages to run back down the hall and escape out the window before they can kill him. Now, you may be saying to yourself, maybe Mason Storm's partner will find the kid and keep him safe, but no dice, because they murder that dude too. However, right before that kid peacefully drifted off to sleep for probably the last time ever, his father mentioned an Uncle O'Malley. So, well done, screenwriter. You've given us just enough to keep this coherent. <laughs> it's true. Just that little bit to keep us moving along. I'm having trouble um, knowing who the people are taking him out in this scene. I feel like I'm supposed to recognize them. They are wearing masks, but I think that we've maybe cut to them. They are dirty cops and mafia. Like, I think it's a mix of the dirty cops and the mafia together. But I'm really struggling to know which the people are that have been, like, hired by the congressman to take him out. Um, so that's a bit of a struggle for me right now. It doesn't really get a lot clearer. We're going to head to the, the hospital, and we do get this person you're talking about. We get the man who is going to be taking care of the kid. We do. That's one of the pieces of information we get here at the hospital. The first piece we get is that future Senator Vernon Trent and Detective Mason Storm knew each other previously. Trent gets in front of the media and plays up the fact that they worked some cases together back when he was a city attorney and what a loss this is. Very what makes people do things like this? Would somebody tell me that? Would somebody please tell me that? Another thing we learned is that internal affairs will be taking over the investigation because a certain Lieutenant O'Malley thinks that something doesn't smell right. And uh, the third thing we learn is that Steven Seagal's character is dead. Dead, I say. But that ends up not being true 20 seconds later. <laughs> There's so much going down here. Uh, we have some cops who are clearly dirty, uh, shit-talking um, our Seagal characters, shit-talking Storm. One of them kind of looks like a very fat Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'm having a lot of trouble telling them apart, to be honest. We do learn that the guy from Internal Affairs, O'Malley, was a friend and is sticking up for Seagal. But like you said, this death and this like dramatic argument between the police and IA lasts all of 20 seconds before another doctor comes out. Yeah, which, I mean, that's just poor communication on the part of the hospital staff. Like, how are you like, he's dead. And then 10 seconds later, he's like, actually. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? 
Yeah, that guy's timing is perfect, though, because he gets there when it's just O'Malley, and we know that he's not one of the corrupt cops. So he brings him in the room where O'Malley finds the tape that Seagal had in his vest pocket, which how did that not get destroyed when he got shot all those times? That's a gaping plot hole for me. <laughs> it is a movie that uh, has to have this evidence left uh, so that this will work. We also know that he's hid other evidence in his home. Right, he has both the videos. Did they mention that then? I didn't know that till later. Yeah, no, he they show him hide that before he goes to try oh, to bang his wife. Oh, yeah, fuck, I missed that. All right. Yeah. Well, either way, we fade out on O'Malley holding Detective Storm's hand and back in on some headlines revealing a future we all knew was coming. Vernon Trent's opponent, the incumbent senator, was killed under mysterious circumstances, so now Trent gets to be senator. Not only that, but he later won a second term and is being heavily tipped as a possible vice presidential candidate. Oh, yeah, and Mason Storm has been in a coma for seven years. (laughs) (laughs) We go from 1983 smack to 1990. We're in the present, baby. (laughs) Yeah, he's got he's got a ridiculous beard. Oh my god, the goatee that he is rocking in this he's got long hair. He's got kind of what I oh, would describe fuck. as like a kung fu style goatee. Yeah, a little bit. It looks fucking ridiculous. He's also got a hot nurse played by Kelly LeBrock. You know that chick from Weird Science? She gets quite the introduction too as the screenwriter gets to have a little fun here. Would you like little pussy JD? She's a little bitty pussy. Look what I've got here. And then she puts a fucking cat on him. Good lord. Yeah, this is pretty rough. Like, the nurse who's taking care of him would be a lot more professional than that, or I would imagine. Um, you she... don't think meat-gazing your patient is professional? <laughs> she lifts... lifts up the sheet and fucking looks at his dog. She lifts it up. She looks at his c- and she tells him he has so much to live for. <laughs> like, oh my God. You're just like, you couldn't oh be God. more heavy handed in setting up who is going to f*** him later. He, you think Seagal took over the script here too as well? I think he did. I think so. I'm just wondering whether she like wanted any business with that, right? Like she was probably like, uh, get me the fuck away from this. I don't know. But uh, like you said, she's definitely going to sleep with him in the future. And that combined with their sexy accent is enough to cause his eyes to actually start fluttering. And before you know it, Mason Storm is back. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that the acting that Steven Seagal does in this wake-up scene is truly incredible. <laughs> so much so much eye work. I can't, He's got his eyes go- I can't even. You described earlier his parenting um, and family man acting as his worst. The eye rolling that he drops here to show that he's waking from this coma, it's unconscionable. Like, it's yeah. not even... <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that Steven Seagal has done in his life that deserves for him to be just absolutely crucified. This may be the peak of it. Yeah, you can just see him stealing money from the studio in the course of this scene. With every, like, eyebrow move and, like, eyelid flutter, it's like, there's $10,000, there's $10,000, just fucking cashing a paycheck. Him pretending to roll his eyes back and then around in his head over and over. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it is really, really rough. As he's starting to wake, he's seeing some visions of the murder of his wife and his family and his son, and he wakes up very sweaty and grumpy. Oh, he definitely does. And now that he's made this miraculous recovery, the hot nurse tries to contact the one man who we can be sure isn't going to betray him, Lieutenant O'Malley. 
only it's Captain O'Malley now, which unfortunately means he doesn't answer his own phone. Instead, a different guy does, and he immediately notifies someone who's not Captain O'Malley, so we know he's definitely one of the bad guys, and it's only a matter of time before Mason Storm gets some visitors in the hospital. And because he's a martial arts master, like I said before, Seagal can once again sense it too. (laughs) He knows that they're coming, and he needs to get out of there. He pleads with the... A nurse friend of his, the one who wants him to wake up so that he can use his meat on her. But she sort of laughs it off and says, you're silly. Uh, And she ignores him. She heads out and then a physiotherapist comes by to give him a massage. And we get some kind of like lame comedy as the physical therapist is giving him a massage while he's trying to get him to get out of there. Okay, see, I had a question about this. Do you think that scene is meant to be comedic? I couldn't get a read on this physiotherapist character. The things he was saying were strange. The massage part's kind of ridiculous. Like, I don't know. It felt like to me that they were trying to add levity to to this okay. scene. Yeah, I think they were trying to make it kind of silly. Um, but it didn't, it doesn't pull it off for sure. It's just sort of like a grumpy uh, sounding Seagal as this other guy is like ignoring him and giving him a massage. I do, I do remember him though. I do remember saying to the guy, thank you for the massage, but you have to get me out of here though. Like he still is being polite enough to thank the guy. Yeah. I don't know. Pretty funny. Um, but of course he is right. There is a doctor, one that nobody recognizes who shows up at the hospital. Well, yeah, and this is obviously a killer sent by those corrupt cops. And full credit to the hospital security guard, he sniffs this guy out, but all that gets him is a bullet through the chest. And the same thing happens to that physiotherapist we weren't sure about. But despite having not used his muscles in a full seven years, Seagal manages to use a mop to pull himself into an elevator, which not only gets him away from the killer, but it also has the benefit of stopping that guy from killing Kelly LeBrock. She finds the two dead bodies and realizes that Seagal was telling the truth earlier when he told her she had to get him out of there. And luckily, she's not too late to do it, as she finds him just in time after some shenanigans involving that killer in the elevator. (laughs) Is this intentional levity? This is my question to you. With the elevator? Yeah. Uh, It's an infuriating example, yet another one. We've had a couple of these in our podcast where they don't follow the rules of how elevators work. (laughs) Like the door is closed and the guy's running up. He could just press the button, but he doesn't. And then all of a sudden, Seagal's going to a different floor. He's going to run up the stairs. It's bullshit. Yeah, you could put your hand in. It could have stopped it. A whole bunch of that happens. But... Basically, Seagal outsmarts him. He uses the mop to pull himself in the elevator. He outsmarts him by going to the top and then hitting back it down again. And the other guy gets stuck because his elevator leaves. It's just this like really bad kind of slapsticky. Like, I just missed him. He just missed me. And he survives it. It's almost like Benny Hillish in a way. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. kind of how it feels, right? And you're just sort of like, are they trying to add that levity with the physiotherapist and now with this ridiculous scene? Whose idea was it? And, like, did they get paid a bunch of money? Because I hope not. <laughs> I don't know, man. But after a quick scene of Senator Trent pledging to end violence in the state of California and then reminding his henchmen and us that if they don't find Storm, he'd be going to jail for a long time, Mason Storm wakes up in what he assumes must be Kelly LeBrock's house. And if you're Steven Seagal and you wake up and see all the Asian art and design elements in this room, aren't you like Jackpot, a lady who's hot and likes appropriating Asian culture? I mean, you can't do any better than that if you're Seagal, right? 
uh, he'd be proposing within 10 minutes. Like, they'd be getting married. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, man. I, I'm only guessing that he got to decorate or choose the house, right? Like, this is... <laughs> I mean, it seems like it. And on that note, I did like how when he sends her to Chinatown to pick up some stuff he'll need for his recovery, he writes the list in Chinese. Like, I legitimately can't think of a more on-brand Steven Seagal scene. Well, except for the convenience or one from earlier and maybe the recovery montage we get next. Those are pretty on-brand, too. <laughs> yeah, this is sort of just him... Flexing the Seagull muscles, if those are a thing. Like, I'm I'm not quite sure, but this is him kind of doing what he thinks is best. He He's going to tell her his backstory, right? He's going to share with her where he's from. And it just so happens that his dad was a traveling uh, religious person, right? Like, in, and he had spent much of his childhood in the Orient, he calls it. And uh, that's where he'd learned all of that. We have, like, Asian-inspired rock going on or coming up soon as he sends her to go do some chores. And like you said, we're about to head into a montage. How'd you feel about that montage? I mean, it's better than when he's acting, like when he's actually saying shit, because at least we're moving through things quickly. And now the action that he's demonstrating in the montage is not impressive or awesome in any way, but we know he's building his strength back. Well, that's what he's doing, and with his body healing rapidly, Detective Storm's next move is clear. He needs to find Captain O'Malley, which he does by chasing down an old phone number and sending Kelly LeBrock to an old folks' home. But first, he's going to send her somewhere else. It's called Pleasure Town. How's this for a come on? Um, hi. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. I was, well, I was just passing by, and I thought... Man, it is all vagina metaphors with this lady. <laughs> but I'll tell you what was confirmed for me during this sex scene is that Steven Seagal is not afraid to grope his co-stars. He grabs her ass and boobs here, which he also did with his wife earlier. And yeah, that could have been the direction, but I don't know, man. Yeah, this is a lot, right? He's not known this nurse very long. I guess she's known him for like seven years. He's only been out of a coma for like a few days here. She comes back with that flower, pops in. While he's doing his montage workout, where is the workout room that he's doing it? What's the setup here? Uh, I honestly don't know. It's like a guest house or something on this property. There's like a like there's like, there's like a big gym mat on the floor or something. There's a giant gym mat. There's all the workout equipment, but there's also a massive fireplace with a roaring fire. Is that not how you work out? Do you not first... Like, <laughs> Set it all up in front of the fireplace, just hoping that I might get to bang a chick on a workout mat right there. I just thought I, yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Um, the I noticed too the ass grab. That is definitely a move. He starts his sexual coitus with picking the woman up or grabbing her by the ass for sure. He definitely does that in real life too. Well, yeah, he's squeezing her like legit. Like this is not a like stage grab. He's groping her, and I'm I just don't know if that was really. On the up and up, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I don't know whether that was a consensual one. Based on what we know about him, probably not. But uh, how did you they, feel about that? What I well, obviously I didn't enjoy that. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I didn't enjoy that it wasn't consensual. In terms of setting up a sex scene on a workout mat in front of a fireplace, I thought it was hilarious. Like I laughed my ass <laughs> off. But yeah. So what we've got next is a real bad news, good news situation. The bad news is the corrupt cops are looking for Kelly LeBrock. In fact, they killed a friend of hers who was looking after her house. But the good news is that O'Malley makes contact with Seagal. He's still got the tape, a copy of it anyway. He's got guns. And most importantly, he's got news that Seagal's son is still alive. 
Whoa, that was big news, right? Like finding out that Sonny's still here. His name is Sonny. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. that's gonna be that's gonna be really big. Um, how much of that sex scene did they show to us? Not enough. Is that what you want me to say? Well, like none, right? Like yeah. we basically cut from the grope and a kiss to some burned out candles. So it's save all it for your enjoyable important. rating, Noel. We'll cover that. I know. Sure. I don't know that that affects it, but I'm just saying. Like, is this because his co-stars refused to uh, do more with him because they were worried about what was going to happen? Or I mean, his wife in the first scene had her top off, and he was touching her like bare breasts. We probably shouldn't keep talking about this. Is drifting into like a dangerous territory. His yeah. son's alive, man. Sonny. Yeah, so Sonny's alive. Um, there's no way that Sonny is like a nerdy smart kid, right? Like that's not going to be what's going to happen. Well, no, didn't the guy O'Malley like send him to some boarding school or something? And he's like, he's excelling at track and field. Wasn't that the deal? Yeah, like they very quickly update you to let you know that he's like an athletic freak. Like that this kid is going to be an absolute unit when he gets older. And of course he is because his genes are that of Storm and Seagal. <laughs> I was going to say that you have to pump the tires on Seagal's DNA. That's how much this is catering to him here. It is. Absolutely. I laughed <laughs> so hard when they described how he was working. I was like, oh, my God, this is too much. Yeah, man, for sure. Now, I mentioned all the things O'Malley has in the last scene. The one one thing he doesn't have is any pull with the police anymore. Turns out he had to retire after the corrupt cops ran his mother off the road and threatened to do a lot more than that, which is going to make things a lot harder. But Steven Seagal isn't even a little bit phased, especially when he finally puts it together that Senator Vernon Trent was the voice on that tape saying you can take that to the bank. I'm going to take you to the bank, Senator Trent. To the blood bank. <laughs> 10 enjoyable i'm calling it right now that that line i am 100 percent out of this movie 10 out of 10 god damn oh i had that in my notes too it was just absolutely insane this whole section of the movie where they're just trying to show what's happened like we found out that his girlfriend's friend was killed and they've set her up and framed her for it like there's all kinds of bullshit swirling around here O'Malley's been sent off the force and then we get that line about the blend bank and I just I I lost it he also tells O'Malley that his superior attitude and superior state of mind will get them, every fucking one of them. And I laughed so hard at that, too. I was like, superior attitude and state of mind is going to be what's going to even this score, baby. Seagal's definitely got a superior attitude. Come on. Oh, my gosh. It's just, it's it's so much right now, and I can't handle it, right? Like, he's just woken up from a coma after seven years, and he's on the lam, and he's hiding, and all of this is coming out in, like, a 48-hour period. It's just so much. Uh, it is slightly unbelievable, that's for sure. Kelly LeBrock returns, and Seagal tells her they need to get out of there, but he doesn't know that she's brought a whole bunch of corrupt cops who'd hired killers with her. So we get a full-blown action scene here. They're shooting and diving behind stuff, grenades. Seagal breaks a dude's arm at one point, but that is all nothing compared to what happens once they get outside and into a Jeep. They were, like, furiously packing when the people come in, and, of course, his ninja senses kick in, and he knows they're there, right? He knows that... They're going to be trying to take them down. This is all the same cops from earlier. We're getting a lot of the same people who were involved in taking out his wife and shooting at him and his child. So it's getting really personal here. We get so many breaks, right? We get the arm breaks and other stuff happening. It's kind of funny. Um, but then when they get in that Jeep, I have no idea how they fucking make it out. This is where 
we described plot armor earlier where he doesn't die after getting shot multiple times. They should have been blown to shit driving <laughs> out of this house in this Jeep because there are like a dozen people shooting automatic weapons at them through the truck, through the car, and none of the bullets either hit a tire or hit them. It was fucking miraculous. He drives right at them too. Like he's not even hiding a little bit. Oh God, no. Like these hired killers, the people who are there to shoot at them are the worst at their job ever. Like all of them should get fired and have no money, right? The senator is not picking the right crew. The part that fucking killed me was when he runs over that one guy and it launches him like 20 feet in the air, which absolutely <laughs> would not happen. Like, I almost pissed myself. I was laughing so hard. We get an awe, <laughs> like an awe screaming sound effect as it happens yeah. to us. Like, like a and wire team flies. pulls him up. It's insane. I, he also finds a grenade and throws it at someone out of nowhere. And I was just laughing my ass off of that too. Like, where did that grenade come from? The shit that's happening as they're getting away are just absolutely baffling. It's, it's really, really hilarious. And then, once they get clear of the property, he finds some random group of Latinos and convinces them to trade cars to them, even though his is riddled with bullet holes and very, very hot. Steven Seagal, man of the people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good persuasion skills here. You're able to give away this bullet-riddled Jeep. I mean, to be fair to the people who traded him, they were having trouble with that uh, old Camaro. It wasn't working very well. So, I mean, maybe he's both a mechanic and a martial artist and super police officer. Well, I mean, he gets that car running right away, so maybe he is. Uh, and I guess at the beginning of this movie, Seagal hid that camera, like you said, to record the meeting somewhere in his home, which I have no memory of. They did show that to us or no? They did. Yeah, they showed oh, okay. him before taking the champagne up to his wife before he was ready to go to Plowtown. Uh, they showed him uh, like hiding it away. Now, I thought it showed him putting it in the freezer. Yeah, I thought he was going in the freezer to get champagne. That's why I was confused. He did put the equipment there. But when mm. we transition back to present day in his home, they actually go to the old home where he was. He finds that that area of his kitchen is boarded up and even like wallpapered over. And he breaks it and pulls out the old camera. He's got that video evidence again. Okay, yeah, so he and Kelly LeBrock swing by the old house, posing as realtors, and charm their way inside so that he can rip open the wall where his fridge used to be, and yes, the camera is still there. And this is where I say again that all of this is still more believable than that scene with the son from earlier. <laughs> Absolutely. The parts of him trying to parent are just so atrocious. <laughs> I don't even understand. Uh, I assume Seagal has children, though, right? Uh, legitimate children or oh, I mean he's fathered children I don't know that he's raised any I honestly don't know I, maybe he has I mean probably I would assume he's probably you know out of wedlock sired a few he's children slipped a few past the goalie is what you're saying yeah that's for sure uh, well, he has the video now, and O'Malley has the tape, and he's going to bring it and Seagal's son to a prearranged meeting place, but the corrupt cops are onto them, so we get a brief showdown at the Weston Bonaventure Hotel, followed by another chase scene, and much like the one at the start of this movie, it is super short. I wonder why they didn't go bigger on these. It is weird. They seem to put him in a very bad position. And then he's able to flee and get out of those positions incredibly quickly. I'm just guessing it was hard to film, like, a real good chase scene. Like, they were just like, we don't have the budget for this. Like, let's not bother. But, I mean, they still crash a couple of cars. I don't know. It just seems like it could have lasted longer. But they tease us with cars in the last scene. It turns out the real chase is going to be on foot. After some more of the corrupt cops intercept O'Malley and Seagal's son at the rendezvous point, the kid takes off while O'Malley valiantly sacrifices himself to buy him some time. 
Now, unfortunately, that time is like 10 seconds. They put this dude down fast and are in hot pursuit. So it kind of makes you wonder if it was worth it, you know? <laughs> this scene's kind of frustrating, right? While they were like meeting up at that random hotel and escaping, O'Malley had grabbed Sonny from the school and he was trying to take him on a train to Albuquerque. He does buy him some time. O'Malley tells the kid to run. He's like, Sonny, get the fuck out of here with this tape. We need it. Your dad's going to find you. And Sonny, only knowing O'Malley basically as his dad after he saw his mom and dad taken out, isn't willing to run away. Like, he actually buys him more time, but the kid won't act. And this was something that was kind of frustrating, too. You were just like, start running, motherfucker, because they're about to take him out and you. And he waits until he sees O'Malley taken out, right? He almost waits until he's killed before he runs away. Now, good thing he's a unit in a track star because he takes off and he gets away from these adults with that tape. It is good they mentioned that, yes. Uh, either way, though, Seagal rolls up in the stolen car from the last scene just in time to spot his son running from the cops, and this is where we get the Bigfoot race. Seagal runs these guys down to Chinatown, and that is not a metaphor. He ends up beating their asses and laying a kabuki mask on one of their corpses. He's got a nice exit line here, too, after Kelly LeBrock rolls up in a different car for some reason. Take care of my son. Got one more takeout order. Nice. I like that. <laughs> I guess. He's really leaning into the Asian stereotypes here. Um, uh, yeah, he's Steven Seagal. What are you, I what know. Are you expecting? Yeah, it's true, yeah. In the fight with that guy in, in Chinatown, I have counted that it is the ninth person he's broken their bones in the movie at this point. Yeah. Just to put that out there. So he's already up to the ninth person he's broken their bones. After he, like... Tells his girl to take care of his son. He heads off in a delivery truck, right? He needs to go and find Trent. It is time to take down the person who's put the heat on him. Yeah, and listen, I know Senator Trent has done a whole bunch of bad stuff, and he deserves to be caught and killed, but after seeing what he's up to, I kind of feel bad for the guy. Like, Mason Storm rolls up and is going to ruin what was looking like a very promising night. (laughs) Is that because he is naked in a hot tub with a young, full-bosomed woman? Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it just it just harkened back to species for me. I just thought she was going to have sex with him and then kill him so that she could raise more alien babies. Oh my god, why that's fucking dark? No man, he's definitely gonna nail her in this hot tub though, right? Oh, he would have if uh, Seagal had not interrupted for sure. Yeah. Uh, so the senator tells his uh, companion to take a hike, and just in time too, as Mason Storm breaks into his mansion and makes short work of the goons in the billiard room. With them out of the way, Trent's right-hand man is next on the agenda, but Seagal spares him after he swears he wasn't a part of the murder of Seagal's wife. But I guess he's got bigger game in mind, and as it turns out, that game is (laughs) hide-and-seek. Yeah, he wants to mess with people now. He's not just happy with taking out everyone who screwed over his family and is currently trying to take him down. He is going to become the hunter. He is going to have some fun and even play with his dinner before he eats it. Definitely, but he's going around room to room, like calling out to him, like as if they're actually playing hide and seek. Oh yeah, like he is actively fucking around now. Um, And knowing how this movie is going, he is going to get his fucking way. Oh, he gets his way, all right. When he finally finds the senator, he rams a shotgun so deep into his mouth, the senator nearly chokes. And all I could think of was, that's probably the exact opposite of what the senator thought was going to happen tonight. You know what I mean? <laughs> you really stuck up on uh, the senator not getting his way in that hot tub, huh? I'm just going to say, it, ma- it made him more sympathetic in my eyes. But anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. I have no sympathy for the senator. Now, no, I don't the really makeup... Either. 
the makeup after that shotgun got shoved into his mouth, though, that was something special. Oh, the whole thing is special, man. But Seagal doesn't kill him here. He just pretends to blow his balls off, which gives us another nice quote. I missed. I never miss. They must have been smaller than I thought. Mason Storm is flying high here, but when the cops show up with just a few minutes left in this movie, it looks like this thing might take a seriously dramatic turn. Yeah, it's it's pretty rough. We we think he's going to kill him, but he really doesn't want to kill him because he he wants to send him to prison where they're going to loosen his asshole to a point where he just leaks fluids. And he makes an anal retentive pun, which is uh that to me is maybe a bit of a bridge too far, but whatever, he's having fun. Uh, and of course, this all works out. Those cops that show up saw the tape and know that Trent is dirty and that Storm was set up. So they haul the senator off to jail and Seagal asks his new family if they need a vacation. And that is it, man. We're in the credits to the 93-minute mark. The nurse runs in after Trent gets dragged away by SWAT and the police. And she immediately tells him, I love you, Storm. Like, holy fuck. All of this happens at an insane pace, right? Where did that come from? Well, hang on. To be fair, we don't know how long that recovery montage was. That could have been weeks, not days. (laughs) True, true. So in those short weeks, they fell in love and he's found a new mommy for Sonny. Yeah, that's the part that's a little bit weird to me is like... He like the three of them going on vacation. Sonny literally just met this lady like twenty minutes ago, and now they're all going to go what fucking Aruba together or something. I don't know. We we find out now, right? We we have this sort of resolution, and we're going to head into the credits, and they're heading off on their own vacation. And Storm is going to be famous. Like they're they they just say that they're like, oh, he is now famous. And we sort of get a cut of that infamous tape of the senator playing on what we assume is like a nightly news channel. Yeah, I kind of thought for a second they were going to give us a freeze frame there, but instead it kind of just fades out. It was interesting they went back to that part at the end. I'm not sure why. Is it like some kind of message about like corruption or something? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure why they decided to go back to that. I don't know if they were telling you now it's over for for him, like Storm is safe and famous and they're not going to be able to get him. And you can take that to the bank? Yes, exactly. Yeah. The blood bank. Unfortunately, there was, he didn't. <laughs> the only blood was on the guy's lip because he had that shotgun shoved in his mouth. But uh, not yeah. not very much blood was taken to Trent. Well, uh, according to Seagal, there'll be some fucking ass blood in prison, so it's all going to work out. So it'll be fine. Uh, I mean, all of his goons got bloodied up pretty badly before he got to Trent, so he sort of did get his revenge. There was a couple nice pool cue kills. He put one through a guy's neck that was just absolutely gruesome. Yep, absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously we've covered a lot here. I'm curious to hear you how you're going to rate this movie because I know you hate Seagal. And I fully went into this expecting it to be bad. But I kind of feel like as we've been talking about it, there's been a lot of things we've both kind of zeroed in on as being positive. So why don't we find out right now? I think we should get to our ratings the way we always do this. We rate the movie on a scale of 1 to 10 two times. 1 to 10 for how bad it is. 1 to 10 for how enjoyable. And the goal is to find movies that are a 10 out of 10 on both scales or what we call the Crit 20. And I'll start us off by saying that there are a lot of things with this movie that aren't that bad, I feel. Like, the pace is good, the music is good if a bit on the nose, the action is pretty good. I thought they kind of hid Seagal's limitations pretty well. Well, only if we're talking about the action. If we're talking about the acting, uh, that is definitely not the case. The uh, the sequence where he is coming out of the coma is unbelievably funny, which is great for my enjoyable rating, but it definitely hurts it here on the bad score. 
Um, other than that and some of the writing, I don't really have a lot of complaints. This was a hit and I can see why. It checks all the boxes of what you'd expect or dare I say want from an action movie. So I only have this as a seven bad and that's almost entirely because of the acting. What about you? Seven only. Wow. Holy shit. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so so well, we don't feel the same way about this is what you're saying. <laughs> so it's funny because I think you're going to be surprised by my ratings a little bit. Maybe not completely, but I thought that the acting was just absolutely awful. Yeah, he's really bad. I'm not trying to sugarcoat that. Yeah. Seagal was incredibly trash, right? Like, And they gave him way too much time where he's trying to be dramatic. You said they hid him pretty well, and I don't think that they managed it at all. From I an action standpoint, bad. in the action scenes, I feel. Because you're right, he's he's not a good martial artist, but he seems credible in these fight scenes. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the plot, for me, was just so paint by numbers, it was out of control. Like, it, it could have been written by a 12-year-old who had watched, like, some action movies, right? Like, this was so, so bad. I want to start calling them PBNs. So I think Paint by Numbers needs its own acronym in our podcast because it comes up so Hashtag often. But I, like for me, plot was PBN. It was just so bad. It was really bad PBN. I also thought the music was incredibly PBN. Well, like I said, like a little on the nose, but I feel like it's appropriate action movie music. Nothing in it held any weight for me. It was pretty bad. I thought the editing was rough, and I actually felt the buildup was too long to the action parts of this movie. So I had it as a nine bad. Wow. Okay, but how enjoyable did you find this movie on a scale of 1 to 10? So this is where I think it may be surprising, possibly. Um, I do hate Seagal. Like you said, he's just absolutely awful. But because his acting and performance was so bad, and because the way they set up the action, I didn't actually hate watching this movie. Yeah, man. I, it was fucking silly. Just like I laughed <laughs> so hard yeah, yeah. so often, I couldn't, I couldn't hold it in. I just thought it was really, really silly. I thought that the montages obviously were helping move it along. I could have done with a few more, but I thought they had at least two, maybe three in the movie, and I was fine with that. The bones broken count also helped me. The amount of times he broke someone's bones, and it got up to double digits, which was funny to me. So I I, I didn't hate watching it. Will I go back to it again soon? Probably not. Do I like Seagal? Absolutely not. But in terms of enjoyability, I had this as an eight. I, I had a pretty good time. I, I enjoyed it. Well, there you go. Uh, for me, action good, like I said. One-liners, pretty strong across the board. That Blood Bank line was incredible. That might be like a top five one-liner <laughs> I've ever heard in my life in an action movie. It's just so silly. Uh, like you said, silly is a great way to put it. It's so fucking silly, this movie. Uh, as I mentioned, the acting, while terrible, was absolutely hilarious. The unintentional comedy was pretty much through the roof here. So I am sticking with my first instant and giving this a 10 for enjoyability. I fucking had a great time watching this. I'm serious. No, they said Under Siege was Seagal's masterpiece, but they fucking lied. This was just tremendous. What a great time. I will 100% watch this again real soon. Really enjoyed myself. Hard to kill. 10 enjoyable for me. I don't know, man. I had a really good time. Real soon. Holy shit. Um, I don't don't remember my rating from Under Siege, but I do think that I enjoyed watching this more, right? I feel like that movie takes itself too seriously, and maybe this wants to, but just can't. It has no ability to take itself seriously. So this I found more enjoyable than Under Siege for sure. Definitely. How enjoyable did you find this beer? Uh, crushable. Really easy to drink. So, so bubbly. Um, really bright. This is definitely a chug or drink at any time beer, right? Like this is one that you could just 
grab grab a Keats lager at any point and enjoy it with friends on your own. It would go well with food, but also goes well if you're watching a football game. Whatever you want to do with it. But I drank both of mine really quickly as we watched this. Yeah, I was surprised at how bubbly it was. You mentioned that, and it very much was. I almost wondered if it was kind of like a brute lager. Like we had a couple of, I think, like uh, champagne-style beers in earlier seasons. It reminded me a lot of that. Great taste, though, like you said, absolutely crushable. I could have this, yeah, with any kind of meal, um, definitely just sitting around, casual drink. You could pound a few of these if you wanted to and like be in great shape. No, really tasty, and I am definitely in the market for some more Storm-Stayed beers. The next time I'm kind of passing through the – they're in London, Ontario, right? Yep. Yeah, next time I'm passing there, I'm going to have to stop by and see what else they have because pretty deep bench on their website, I thought. They had like a lot of things on offer. We just couldn't find them here. Yeah, they have a lot more at the brewery than you can find in our sort of alcohol distribution places. Uh, I would love to take a trip out to London, visit a couple breweries there, and definitely stop at this one. I would say now, I sort of threw it out there at the start of the podcast, I would say now it's definitely worth a trip to go visit this place. That Imperial Sour sounds like something I would like to try, and there's a lot of stuff on that menu, and if you have a chance to buy some Keats, uh, definitely grab some for yourself because you won't be disappointed. I agree. Now, you mentioned love a second ago, as you know. Uh, two weeks from now, when our next episode drops, will be Valentine's Day. We've never done a Valentine's Day episode before because we haven't been doing February episodes, but we're doing it this year. And so we're going to have our very first Valentine's Day episode. We're going to be looking at a, I don't know if you'd call it a romantic thriller, but it's by request by one of our followers on Twitter. Uh, it's a movie called, and I, I, you know, not really the most appropriate title for a Valentine's Day movie, perhaps, but it's called The Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> what? It, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, it, it stars Dame Joan Collins, and uh, it's some kind of like vaguely erotic or romantic thriller. I think it involves uh, high society types and some sort of scheme. Uh, it was a request. There's just enough, like, uh, let's say, romance in it that I felt it would be very appropriate for Valentine's Day episode. If you want to find out more, well, you and I will be watching and discussing it, but come back in two weeks because, to be honest, I've never seen this. I don't know what it's going to be like. Hadn't even heard of it when it got requested, but we'll give it a shot. It sounds pretty interesting. Uh, you said Dame. She's been kind of knighted by the queen here. Well, I don't think you're knighted when you're uh, a lady, right? Aren't you? Well, is, maybe it is still being called knighted. I have no idea. That's that's pretty impressive repertoire here. I'm wondering what this movie is. When's it from? Uh, Mid-late 70s, I think. Okay, so kind of a time where I'm really unfamiliar with the cinema. So we'll yeah, see. and a time when a lot of very different things were going on in cinema, right? Like there's all kinds of weird like subgenres and stuff and a lot of experimental things. So I have no idea what to expect either. Looking forward to it, though. Uh, so, you know, you can come back in two weeks for that. Before then, if you haven't already, please follow us on social media uh, at the BMB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to send us emails, thebmbpodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. We love hearing from you, and we thank you for joining us today for Hard to Kill. Hopefully, we'll be back in two weeks for the bitch. But until <laughs> then, I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Keep taking it to the bank. <laughs> yeah, man. The fucking blood bank. Three hired assassins left him for dead. He's waited seven years to even the score.